I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Farmland is the least institutionally owned asset in America. So it's 90 plus percent owned by families, like in, in individual people. Mm. So you're dealing with direct-to-direct business people. Yeah. They're, they're, they're actually not very bureaucratic at all. They're like the least bureaucratic group of people I've ever met. Their instinct for conservation is better than anyone you've ever met because that's their asset. Like their land value, their land health, their, mm. you know, their animal health, their water health, that's their hard asset. So they can't mess that up. And so their willingness to try things that actually conserve and improve those things is quite high. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you, as ever, for tuning in. Before we get into today's show, I just wanted to follow up quickly on last week's episode with Trevor Nielsen. It went up a bit later than normal because the editors wanted to wait until the piece that I wrote that was on the back of that interview went up online first so as to not front run. And as expected, the pod and the story generated a huge amount of discussion on both sides of the Atlantic, which is fun. Um, Lots of people came out of the woodwork to bash Nielsen, but also in support of him. And it did generally generate some real debate about how best to address climate change going forward, which was, after all, Nielsen's goal. So in that sense, it worked. Now, has anything changed since then? Obviously, no. Of course not. But I do think we need to continue to have these very hard conversations about climate because it's such a massive challenge. And I do think we need everybody, uh, and I mean everybody, pulling in the same direction on it. And I know that feels a little, well... That's just not the way it's going to be. But um, I hope you'll agree that I think discussions like that are worth worth having. And hopefully in the next few weeks, I'll have somebody come on to give the other side, to give the activist side, because I think that's also worth just really exploring when we're talking about especially these very disruptive tactics that for a lot of people go too far. But, you know, they also say they have a point and this is how you actually uh, affect real change. Anyhow, all of that said, let's get to this week's show. So we have a super interesting guest who is actually working on climate, but from a very different angle. Devin Wright is the founder of a company called Lumo, the maker of a smart valve that uh, 
right is selling to farmers out here in California where water is obviously a huge concern. In fact, many farmers out here are being paid hundreds of millions of dollars in total by the state to fallow their land, to do nothing, because our supplies, particularly in Southern California, that is fed by the Colorado River, are so desperately constrained. And Devin is one of the growing number of people I'm coming across out here who are climate tech entrepreneurs, but who are coming across from kind of old-fashioned tech, for lack of a better term. He did a startup, had some success, and then was drawn into this climate problem to the degree that he has now chucked in what he used to do and has invented a smart valve that, unlike most big water valves, which farmers use to you know open and close to feed their fields, this one is connected to the cloud. You can control it via an app, detect leaks, very important, turn it on and off remotely, etc. And you know how much flow water is flowing through it, you get the idea. It's at the same time a very simple idea, but also one that's addressing a very complex problem that amazingly is pretty wildly underserved here in 2023. So we brought on Devin to talk about Lumo, how and why he started it, his life before getting into the water fight, and how it has been so far diving into something completely different and obviously very challenging. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So here he is, Devin Wright of Lumo. Enjoy. Looks like you're in your garage, as the Brits would say. Yeah, I am. This is our uh, makeshift workshop. We do a lot of our assembly in here. So it's really, truly a startup right now. Just Actually a in a garage, right? Yeah. Where is your garage? Where, what city? The beautiful Occidental California. And for those who don't know, yeah, what is, uh, explain Occidental. Oh, I don't know if you can explain it. You have, <laughs> you have, to, you have to visit it to, to truly experience it. It's uh, it's an awesome little town. It's maybe a thousand people north of, uh, buried in the redwoods, about sixty miles north of San Francisco. Is yeah. my guess. Driving. Yeah, yeah, it's about right. Yeah, it's a beautiful little spot. So I moved up here like four years ago, right before the pandemic, and then the pandemic made it into my home. How did you end up uh, in Occidental in the first place? I don't know, honestly. I knew about it because a friend of mine had a house here and a little vineyard and stuff. So, I mean, it was pretty idyllic and I would go visit him. And so I obviously was like, oh, that's a really cool place. You know, one day I wish I could have a vineyard or something up there. That was probably like 2017, right? When I moved to California and um, slowly that thought just like infected my brain. So by the time 2019 came, I was like driving up here, looking at spots, see what was out here. And I couldn't afford a vineyard, but I was able to buy this property <laughs> with uh, with some space for an orchard. So I I planted an orchard and intended for it to just be like this weekend kind of getaway thing that I would do. Right. Between my time living on a boat in San Francisco. But then COVID hit. It was like, well. <laughs> you were living on a boat? Yeah, in Sausalito, actually. And like this little tiny tugboat. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. Yeah, <laughs> Working in San Francisco by day, uh, tech by day and tugboat living by night. <laughs> it was just so much cheaper. Uh, yeah, I can it imagine. It was crazy. How much was yeah. it to, 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 to pay for the slip for the tugboat? $450. Versus like four grand for like a one bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Like, literally, it was about an order of magnitude cheaper. Yeah. So plus, I, I don't know, I wasn't I, I wasn't digging living in the city anyway. So I was like kind of on my way out of the city. 
What's the one thing you remember from tugboat life before we get to, to business? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a blessing and a curse when the boat would rock. Cause if it was a nice subtle rock, it was like, wow, what a nice way to fall asleep. It's mm. like being rocked like a baby to sleep. So most of the time it was like that. But then there were some times where the rocking was like pretty aggressive and you'd wake up and be like, you know, in a daze and like think, you know, it's not usual that your house is rocking. So, you, no. you know, your, your first response was like, the earthquake is here, the big one. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd like come to and be like, oh, no, never mind. I live on a boat. Like, and then you just go back to sleep. <laughs> that was always fun. <laughs> so... I was re- asking about Occidental because it feels like that was kind of a determining factor for what you're doing now. So if you could explain briefly kind of Lumo, what it is and how you ended up doing it, because this, and also because you're not like a water guy or an ag guy by kind of background. So just yeah. if you could explain kind of what you're doing and how you ended up doing it. You're right. Occidental played played a huge role for me. Like I said, it's about 60 miles north of the city. So it's actually basically the westernly most edge of wine country. And so there is a lot of a lot of wine and grapes up here. You know, as we talked about it, it's also quite rural. So, you know, it's it's groundwater fed and Russian river fed. There is no like major plumbing or anything up here. So you, there's no like water grid per se. Yeah, exactly. I mean, where it's a pretty unincorporated even. So there's no like municipal water anything, you know, we, we just we just pull our water out of the ground. So that was like a pretty big eye opener for, mm. I'd say like a micro version of what California in general is, right? Like most of the people that live here wouldn't know that because they get their water, you know, in LA or San Francisco from from the taps. But most of the state's water actually comes from the ground or, you know, from large infrastructure projects and is used in agriculture, something yeah. like 85%. So moving here was just so kind of, I opened to like, wow, okay. So California has this different water grid, their water situation than I knew. And keep in mind, this is like 2019. So it's like peak drought. Yep. And so like my community was really starting to face just water, water running out. Like my neighbor's water ran out all up the lane that I live on. Mine didn't luckily, but wow. You know, and so at this time I was trying to, to start my orchard, which only exasperated the awareness even more of like, wow, like, Water is not only very rare and difficult here, and you got to be really careful how you manage it. But if you want to use it for growing food, you're going to use so much more water growing mm. food than you ever are for your personal use. You know, so this is a precarious situation. California is a huge agricultural producer. Yeah, you know, it's dependent on this groundwater and, and kind of depleting water that that was getting quite low here in the drought and. Having tried my hand at irrigation myself, I, I was looking for tools that would help me be more accountable and have more kind of clarity around how much water was I using and, 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 and give me more control over that water so I could be more precise with it. And there just was no technology out there that was helping me to do that. So, you know, and I looked around, I looked at some of the incumbent stuff and it all felt like it was stuck in the 90s, you know, like there's mm. all this amazing advancements. Like I have a, you know, I have a Nest so my thermostat's connected and smart. Yeah. I have a I have a connected garbage can from the same guys who made Nest called Mill. It's a composter, right? Yeah, yeah. So like my garbage can is smart. It's pretty crazy that my water system that is like the most important, yes, you know, asset in my house, uh, and the, certainly the most important commodity in the state, our water, is so underserved when it comes to s- smart technology that would help empower conservation. 
And that kind of smacked me as an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur once before. I was like, I was always thinking like, what's my next adventure going to be? And that problem just felt really meaningful. Like this is going to be a big problem for the state if we don't find ways to give growers better technology to track their water and control their water and, and detect leaks and other things that conserve our water. So basically that's what Lumo is. It was the answer to that kind of recognition that we need far better technology for growers, our largest users of water, to better understand and conserve that water. I'm curious when you bought your place up there, is there anything in there about water in like the contract, you know, in the billion pages you have to sign to buy anything? Because again, it feels like it's just more central. You know, I'm living in Oakland, you know, we're on a municipal water system. You don't even think about it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's like the number one thing you look for in these contracts. It's like, what's your well, basically what's the well run at and when's the last time it was tested. And you'd be smart to test pretty much every time you're going to, consider buying a property because yeah your water is your oh interesting is your value prop in a lot of ways everything else you can fix you know you can build the house over you can yeah you can modify your landscape but you can't make water go under the ground no and so what is loom what is what have you created at lumo what's the what's the thing yeah it's a it's a smart valve basically an irrigation valve so you know funny enough i always have one just kind of laying around it's a smart irrigation valve. Oh, wow. It's about as big, almost as big as your head. It's pretty much the size of my head. Yeah. I mean, this is just our first version. It's a yeah. two-inch two valve. And I don't know if it's helpful to give you some background on how people irrigate a lot yeah. in this state here, but some of the biggest crops in the state are specialty crops, and those are drip irrigated. And that's a great thing, by the way. Drip irrigation is a, is a marvel if you ever get a chance to read a book called Let There Be Water or if the listeners mm. want to check it out by, by uh, I believe, Seth Siegel. That is just a, a wonder of writing. And it tells the story of drip irrigation in this, in, in you know, like how amazing this invention was for productivity of agriculture and right. conservation of water. And in, in some ways, actually kind of played this huge role in Israel going from being like this desert population that no one thought was going to be able to be a sustainable culture to being like this huge kind of net exporter of agriculture and water. So just a wonderful invention, this drip irrigation. So we're lucky here in the state that actually pretty widely adopted. And when you irrigate that way, and that's the fastest growing way to irrigate, by the way. So this is I a imagine. really good thing. Good yeah. thing. But there's problems with that kind of irrigation because it's these like rubber or, or kind of plastic tubes that are, yeah. that are dripped along the, the crop rows. So it's helpful in, in that it delivers very accurate amounts of water, but it's not great because there's these plastic tubes everywhere. And, and you know, over hundreds of acres of land, you've got these tubes that often can be chewed by animals looking for water. Um, they can be run over by tractors. They can just degrade over time. And so the maintenance, the kind of operating cost mm. of, the, of this technology is quite hard. You know, you have to turn on all these valves to get the water going, and then you got to walk up and down the rows to look for any, you know, anomalies. So that's kind of one of the big challenges of, of adopting it. And even uh, it's holding back a lot of growers from adopting it. But even the growers that do adopt, it, they could spend upwards of kind of three, $400 an acre on labor and, and, and associated costs mm. just to turn on and off valves and to look for these lines. So what we realized was there was kind of two opportunities in, in terms of the, what technology could do to help drip irrigated growers conserve their water and, and kind of uh, you know, minimize their costs we realized that the valves were all dumb valves out in the field. Mm. There's these big kind of hunky plastic or, you know, sometimes metal, often two inch valves, but there's four inch and, and more valves out there. And um, people walk around and turn them, they crank, turn them open. And then they kind of go to the next one and crank, turn them open. They set like a timer on their yeah. watch and, and like, you're supposed to come back and close these valves. 
So we looked at that and thought, man, that's the point in the field that needs to be smart. These mm -hmm. valves are, are not only like where you would actuate the water, turn it on and off, but they're the truth. They're the, the source of truth around how much water is coming through to the crop. And also they're the source of truth of, is that water, you know, coming through in a healthy way? And, right. You know, is the flow rate going through the valve in a way that could actually detect a potential broken line or a clogged filter or something like that, right? So we just totally reinvented it. We built, we built this valve that I just showed you. It's got a built-in flow meter. It's got other sensors built into it. It's got telecommunications built into it. It's got computers so that it can do some kind of machine learning to detect kind of what healthy looks like and when anomalies occur. And we connect the whole thing to the cloud. We connect to solar so it's totally off the grid. And it does some really powerful things to both automate the irrigation. You know, we can, we can with our software, let growers schedule all the irrigations they want without having to drive around turning on and off valves. Like buying an app, basically. Yeah. And then it also is monitoring every irrigation. We, we score every irrigation, what we call flow health score, so that not only are the are the valves being turned on, but the grower can rest assured that those valves are performing in a way that's delivering kind of the exact amount of water that the crop needs and no more, which has a huge upside for conservation because a, a tremendous amount of water gets lost to just, you know, leaks and over irrigation through human error. So we're, we're, we're pretty happy about what we've been seeing so far from that product. When did you invent it? How long has it been? How long have you been trying to sell it and put it out there in the world? The day I kind of quit my job to do this full time would have been April last year. So just over a year ago, we raised a round uh, led by Fallline Capital and you know, pre-seed round because we didn't even really have a product at that time. Or we had a product. It was just this clunky prototype I'd yeah. been built, built and was using in my own orchard for about a year. Then we, we took it to commercial. So about two years ago, I kind of invented this thing and, and built and put it in my own orchard and saw it was working and was like, oh, this seems cool. And did some customer discovery to realize like, damn, this is a problem that a lot of commercial growers mm. have that, that we could solve. But yeah, for about the last year, we've really been kind of full time with capital investing and building right. out the right, product. Right, yeah. Right. What was your job that you quit? I worked at Yelp. I ran the restaurant division. So Yelp for restaurants. I was the GM. Right. So of course you go from restaurant reviews to building agricultural hardware and software. That's super, super obvious leap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, industry-wise, it's pretty different on a glance, I guess. But I think what was so attractive to restaurants and why, you know, I start my first business was kind of focused on on helping SMBs and, and restaurant restaurateurs with, you know, building technology for them. Yeah. Can we talk about what you did? Like, because you're actually not even from California, not even from America, correct? Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm from the Commonwealth. I'm, uh, I'm from Canada. Amen. Yes. The queen. Well, actually, I guess the king is on your money now. I'm not sure. I mean, the well, I don't know when they're going to do that change. Are know. they going to change that? We I love the queen. So <laughs> that's a lot of dollars to try to pull that's out of the system lot. and reprint. It is you a know? lot. It is. I don't know. If, it is a lot. I don't know if we should. <laughs> um, where in Canada did you grow up? A little town called Whitby, Ontario. It's just about 45 minutes east of Toronto if you were driving on the 401. Got you. How did you end up in California? Well, yeah. So I built a technology company there that was uh, something like a marketing platform. It was for local businesses, actual like brick and mortar stores. Mm. And it ended up being pretty much exclusively restaurants who we worked with. Yeah, it was built to help them connect with their customers on premise, though. Um, our, our kind of whole thesis was... The little guy is getting beat up by the big guy, you know, right. like you, you, if you're a small shop, uh, restaurant, 
there's all this technology in 2012, 13, 14 that's being built, social media networks, Twitter, Yelp, all these you know platforms group on. And they're digital by nature, you know, like yeah. they're advertising to people that are that are online, which is kind of useful. But at the end of the day, like you're a store, you need people to walk in the door. And, and actually pretty much every day you have hundreds of people walk through your door. So we were thinking like, what's the technology for those people to actually connect with the people that are just walking in the door? Mm-hmm. You know, you already have this captive audience, yeah. customers every day. How do you connect with them through mobile when they're on premise? So we built this location-based marketing technology that allowed for customers and businesses to connect through the Wi-Fi network and do some really cool stuff with with yeah, sending messages when people walk in the door and uh, tracking, see. you know, things like that. So it was it was fun technology. And then it got acquired by Yelp in 2017. So that, that's why we moved down here. Was that your first business or had you go to university and then kind of stumble into it? Like, how did you get into that? Yeah, I started it because I was a, I did go to university. I went to business school, but business school was mostly just training you to be like a banker or like a consultant. <laughs> so I didn't, and that wasn't really like my jam. I, yeah, yeah. I was, I was trying to go to business school, to learn how to make a business. So I kind of graduated in 09, which is a weird time to graduate mm. in, out of business school. So I took a banking job for a couple of years and I learned a lot, but I definitely just was not cut for that cloth. You know, yeah. I was DJing, DJing at night and I was, I was, had a band and I was like, you know, making music and doing that sort of thing. And what kind of music? I guess we called it like indie, indie dance, you know, indie like dance. That. What is that? I'm just, I'm showing my age now. You I can don't even look know. it up. We have an album that went on Spotify called Natural Animal. Natural Animal. N-T-R-L-A-N-M-L. Oh, like a, like a startup without the vowels. Remove the vowels, except you can't <laughs> remove the A from animal or else it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was a bit weird choice. But uh, but anyways, yeah. So it was for that. For the, We were playing live shows. What part of the band were you? I was a singer. Right. Yeah, a singer. Front man. Uh, you were doing front man. crowd surfing. Etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like you know, tr- trying. We didn't often have big enough crowds to actually surf, so <laughs> some injuries from that. But crowd boogie board. Yeah, exactly. But that was where I really detected this problem of like, oh man, we have all these people come to shows, and like, how do we connect with them? You know, it's not. It doesn't make any sense to advertise on Facebook if you're a band. Like, you, I mean, you can, but like at the end of the day. You, you're trying to connect with people's lives, right? That's the yeah. real social media is like in the in the restaurant and in the, in the venue. And we were just feeling so, everyone was trying to build their own mobile apps. And we were like, this isn't the right, this isn't mm. the right solution. No one's going to download a mobile app for every band. There needs to be some sort of like physical venue platform that can be common across all the venues and music venues and that fans could connect to and bands could, you know, access data in certain ways based on the nights that they, they played and all that. And so that we originally built the product it's called Turnstile for the uh, band mm. to connect with their fans. It was actually called Fan Garden at the time. It was very early. But then quickly we learned bands don't have any money to buy anything. So <laughs> we, we pivoted to selling it to the venue. Uh, and that was a better choice because venues have more money. Right. Uh, and then that, that just morphed. Yeah. So that was how we came up with it. But as, as you can see, I'm just like a hacker, right? I yeah, just yeah. kind of like I look at a problem that I see and I think like, well, that seems like it's worth solving. Uh, I'll try my hand at solving it until a smarter engineer than me walks over and says, like, stop coding. You suck at that. I'll take over the coding and you can do the thing, the selling thing. Was there a moment where you're like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a rock star? Yeah, it was a sad day. My partner and I, we, we we were sad. What got you there? 
just the pressure of growth, you know, once a business starts to grow, we've always described it as like for the very early stages of a business, you you, you push a lot. You're yeah. always pushing. You have to push everything. And you know the feeling because it's exhausting. It really feels like you're pushing yeah. something like a, up a hill because there's no demand yet. You know, like yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. convince everybody to do this thing that like they're like, what the, why would I do that stupid thing? That's a dumb yeah. idea. Or maybe they're interested, but the product's not there yet or whatever. So, you know, you're pushing, 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 you know, all of a sudden you can honestly feel it in the early days mm. of business. You can feel when the, when the pushing starts to become a pull. Right. And then you lose, you lose control of like your, everything else in your life for a little while because you weren't prepared for, mm. for the pull, you know, all of a sudden people are asking for the product, you know, you have more demand than you expected mm. you're, and you don't have any team. You hadn't hired you know, for that. So you have to do the sales and you have to do the customer support and you have to do the hiring and you're, you just feel overwhelmed in a totally different way. You're not exhausted from pushing. You're, you're exhausted from like just juggling and, and having too much to do. Now I'm probably better at knowing that that's happening and learning how to hire ahead of that. But back then I didn't know at all. So, mm. you know, it just sucks the life out of you. And, and the, we didn't have any space left to do creative things or you right. know, to play shows and yeah, so it was it was actually pretty hard on on us actually the band my bandmate and i were the founders and the band so we we kind of oh, had wow. to like break up yeah it, it, it fucking sucked yeah yeah, yeah, was, yeah it was sad but we worked out we worked it out what is uh your former bandmate doing now is he still doing music i think he still does some stuff but he's he's like um like an executive coach oh wow he's invested in lumo so we oh really oh yeah we, <laughs> we somehow kept it all together right 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 so you built up this business and then yelp came calling in 2017 is that right yeah and was that just a completely random reach out well kind of like we were we were out here at an event at an event i can't remember what and somehow yeah they reached out to talk about partnership and to learn more about the technology and at the time there was a company called zenreach i think they might still be around hmm they were literally like direct as direct a competitor as it could have. Mm. They were way better funded. They're from Silicon Valley. You know, Peter Thiel invested like $30 million and joined their board. And we oh, were wow. like, holy shit, this is, this is like, a, they have a war chest. You know, we'd yeah. raised like two, 2.8 or something over like five years, like all rolling $50,000 checks and $5,000 checks. Oh my gosh. And, uh, I think something must've happened where Yelp got interested in them. And as a corporation would do, they looked at other, you know, alternatives to them and we were one of them so we yeah we ended up having a really good conversation and, and realizing like yeah yelp was a company that had very similar values and a very similar mission statement and right. uh, looked like looked like it could be a good home for the vision to reach its potential so took the leap hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Was that a kind of a life-changing thing, selling? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And when you got out here, what was your experience of out here? Because, you know, I talked to a lot of people, especially Brits. We have a lot of Brits on the show who come out here and they're like, you know, kind of, you know, they'll complain about certain things or find things very frustrating, but there's also like this kind of, this kind of vibe here, which is think big, think global. Here's a bunch of money, go to conquer the world type of kind of energy. What, what was your experience? Did you feel that as well or not really? Or yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like a life, life changing attitude of just, we're very like conservative bunch the canadians not yeah, small yeah. c small c conservative we're actually insanely <laughs> <laughs> socialist country in a lot of ways but uh you know we, we're very happy with like 10th place yeah you know i don't think we have a single uh, and i mean you can look at the numbers it's not me just saying that like i, know, I don't think I we have a single industry that we dominate and there are many countries about yeah. our size or smaller that have like dominant global industries like look at the dutch or like you know like yeah. there's just we don't have a single one because we we just don't that's not how we are you know like i actually get really frustrated now when i try to like work with canadian teams because we're so like nice and we just have this really like hey let's make sure everyone has a chance to weigh in (laughs) and in like in like week five of working with americans because i always ask a lot of questions yeah as canadians do that's what a is by the way you know when we say a we're actually turning it into a question to like soften it it's nice outside Hey, I can't. It's a. I can't just it, tell you that it's it? nice outside. Yeah. Like you got to make sure you have a. It's, you can't make that declarative statement because it might find somebody might find it offensive. Yeah, yeah. Disagree. So in business, I was doing that. I yelled for the first couple of weeks. You know, I'd ask a lot of questions of the executive. They would, you know, they would yeah. say, "Hey, tell us where you want to spend some money or whatever." And I'd say, "Oh, okay." Like, you know, I think we should do this. Like, do you think we should do this kind of thing? And then finally, yeah. they like they literally were just like. Don't ask me another question. Like, if you ask me any more questions, you're out of here. Like, you're going to tell me what you want to do. You're going to ask for the budget and then you're going to fight for the budget, you know, because other people want that budget. Like, and it it was just the pressure to, to just think big and to just ask for something big and to be, you know, not demanding in an offensive way per se, but just like, you know, know what you want, do the research, know what you want and go and get it. Mm. It was amazing. And I, as long as I'm in business, I think, you know, I'll, I'll want to stay down here because it's. Yeah, it's such a different attitude. And I think yeah. it's a really, yeah, at least for this time of my life, it's a really, really valuable learning and a very valuable experience for sure. Right. So going back to the present day, you know, the Colorado River is being rationed for the first time since the Hoover Dam was built. Huge. You know? And we've had a wet winter. And I was talking to some people in like the water world for that piece we wrote the other week in the paper. And they're like, you know, that in a way, that's kind of the worst Thing that could have happened because people kind of like, ah, okay, never mind about that drought thing or whatever, yeah. because we have one wet winter in 20 years totally. or whatever. But just wondering kind of what you're seeing when you talk about 
instead of selling to restaurants, you're selling to farmers. And farmers are, you know, those are really thin margin businesses where you don't have a lot of control over the inputs that are going to mean a good year or a terrible year. And I imagine they're very conservative about what they're going to agree to try when in terms of new technology. So I'd love to get a sense of kind of what the temperature is when you're talking out to growers and whose life blood this is when, again, when we're, you know, in this new kind of water scarce world. The first thing I'll say, just because I honestly, I think a lot of, I was surprised how few people have an honest understanding of who farmers are. Mm. When I told people I was going to try to sell to farmers, like I would get a lot of reactions from my city folk friends being like, you're going to try to help farmers conserve stuff. They don't care. They're Trump loving, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, They're yeah, red, yeah, this and that. Yeah. It was insane. Like, and, and I mean, these are very educated, high level, C-level people telling me stuff like that. And it actually spooked me because I was like, man, maybe I'm totally like wrong on this. Mm. But that is just the most inaccurate perspective of who farmers are, right? Yeah. Farmland is the least institutionally owned asset in America. So it's 90 plus percent owned by families like in, in individual like people. Mm. So you're dealing with direct to direct business people. Yeah. They're, they're, they're actually not very bureaucratic at all. They're like the least bureaucratic group of people I've ever met, which is so awesome because that means their willingness to try things is like direct. If they mm. see a value and they think it can help, they're going to try it. Their instinct for conservation is better than any one you've ever met because that's their asset, like their land value, their land health, their, mm. you know, their animal health, their water health, that's their hard asset. So they can't mess that up. And so their willingness to try things that actually conserve and improve those things is quite high. And then the thing I'd, I'd say you're, you're you know, really accurate about is they do have a very, you know, conservative mindset. So they're not going to just like try stuff that, oh, we're going to revolutionize your yields. Oh, we're yeah, going to do yeah, this. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to yeah. do this one technology is going to triple your yield. They actually very skeptical of that because if you put yourself in their shoes, their risk reduction first, that's yeah. their job. It's like rich risk reduction first because they're up against all these, you know, unknowns, like you said, and they're up against market forces and, and they have a long view, very long view and, and are often protecting a, you know, family asset. So that's a good thing if you're able to understand that mindset and, and position yourself around helping them achieve that risk reduction first. That's what we've tried to do. We've said, look, mm. even though you have a thin margin business, you actually have a lot of valuable inputs and a lot of costs that go into creating those margins. How can we help you reduce those costs? How can we help you reduce the volatility of those costs or of the you know, inputs that go in? And so with our, our technology, you know, we, we fully position ourselves around how can we help you reduce labor? How can we help you detect potential catastrophic loss to your pumps or to your lines? How can we help you detect waste? How can we help you conserve your, your precious water? Those resonate really well with them. And then they're very quick to be able to try things. You know, they're not going to roll you out across their whole farm overnight. Yeah. Um, probably not even going to roll you out across their whole farm in a single season or even a few seasons. But their willingness to try things is quite high if it's positioned correctly. And I think that's something that technology companies sometimes miss because we're trained mm. in the valley to be like, revolution, revolution, yeah, revolution. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 evolution first. But man, once they want to try something, their their ability to try and to move quick, it's unprecedented. I mean, we already have 15 growers, including two of the largest growers in their category in America, piloting with us. 
and we have only had our product live starting this season, like just, right. just a few months, just a few months. So the fact that they would let us in and let us kind of cut the pipes and let us put the valves in and, and really take part in their critical infrastructure mm. and in their in the most important application uh, that they can do to their crop in a single season at that early of a stage is testament to like just how quickly they can move because they are so willing to to try things that do help with conservation and risk reduction and, and they have the structure to do it quickly. Last week we had uh, this guy called Trevor Nielsen on the pod and he's also in the kind of climate tech world and he set up this climate emergency fund that ended up being like the primary funder for Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, all these big, really aggressive activist groups. And now he's come out and saying, you know, you guys are going too far. You're undermining your own cause, et cetera, et cetera. But the broader point of him starting that is like, you know, the light is blink flashing red in terms of climate and this kind of stuff. I'm just wondering, what is your sense from Again, the farmers where this is their life's work, this is their family's assets, et cetera. When they think about climate, when they think about water, when they think about extreme weather, I'm sure it's varied. But do you have a sense of kind of how front and center or not um, these kind of concerns are amongst that group? From what I can see, they are um, taking those concerns very seriously. You know, like I was at a, a conference in February in Utah with Fall Line Capital, our, our venture fund, who owns a hundred and something thousand acres of farmland. So they wow. they put their they put their money where their mouth is. They don't just invest in tech. You know, they're they're quite a large farmland holder. And um, this was a multi-day event and there was panels on all sorts of different topics. And a huge chunk of those panels were about climate data, mm. sharing climate data, you know, looking at how heat patterns had moved and precipitation patterns were moving. It was amazing to be in the room because in some way that the stereotypes were there. there, there's cowboy boots and there's, you know, yeah. the flannel shirts. And so, you know, if you were just looking in without being able to hear the audio, you'd think, oh, this is just a you know bunch of farmers who, who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Probably just something to do with farmland or whatever. But no, like these group of people were really seriously taking and understanding the data that was being shared to them about how patterns could and have been changing and, and, mm. and estimates as to how things could go. And again, of course they are, right? They're trying to plan seasons ahead to think about how to best utilize the land for different types of crops, how to how to best utilize the newest technology in in crop DNA to what types of crops could support drought resistance and other things, because that's their job full-time is to think about how to Mm. react and 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 maintain production in the face of climate change. So they take it really seriously. What I think I've seen is that, like we just talked about. They don't just react really quickly and like, really, yeah. like, oh shit, like now it's time tomorrow, just like pull all the trees out, let's just move. Or because that's not what farming's about. Farming's about long term. Yeah. It's about adjusting to the cycles over time. And so there's there's um an urgency in trying to like understand and react to this data. I think they take it very seriously. But there's a healthy process of of understanding the data and reacting to it over time, as opposed to just like Let's fallow all the land and then figure yeah. out what to do next. Or let's like pull oil from the economy and then figure out what yeah, we're yeah. going to do. Like, how do you like it's not so th- I think I would agree. I don't know if that's what your host or guest was saying. Sorry. But it's like there's a certain urgency that you cross a limit and then it becomes really counterproductive and particularly mm. to systems, complex long term systems like farming 
they certainly are trying to be measured for good reason. You know, they don't yeah. get to do, you don't get to try things twice if you tear out all your trees or you kill all your cattle. You don't. So no. you, you, and then food security is gone. And then that creates a whole bunch of other yeah. issues that we may not have, you know, planned for. And so I think, you know, the farmers are handling it in a healthy way. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I think I was reading the other day that the government's handing out hundreds of millions of dollars to farmers to fallow their land. Basically, yeah. like, just don't use water because there's not enough right now, which is just kind of... I, I think it's wrong. I mean, even even that Colorado decision to just you know pay people for conservation, which is a great first step, by mm-hmm. the way. That's great. But we're kind of skipping a step, which is like, can we just improve efficiency? We mm-hmm. haven't done anything in, at all, but which is, by the way, was by design. We, we designed our legal systems, our water rights systems, and our infrastructure to be completely appropriative. Just get as much water as you can out to the West so people will move here and create industry yeah. and create agriculture, and which they did, and it worked. But that means that it, there's, a, there's huge rooms for improvement when it comes to agricultural modernization, when it comes mm. to in, irrigation modernization, infrastructure reinvestment, to make better use of, our, of the resources that we have. It's very likely, in my opinion, that you could fallow no land and grow the same amount of food using less water just by investing some of those resources in modernization. Right. Just a stat for that is that 30 to 40% of all water is lost, fresh water is lost in municipal systems to leaks. So it's, and it's something similar in farms, right? It's like, so if you just figured out how to get better with leaks, you might have a significant improvement in water availability for growing crops. So I don't think there's one right answer. It's a, probably a portfolio of bets, mm. but I just don't hear enough conversation about how do we actually invest in more efficiency and more data capture and better, you know, systems that will allow us to, you know, potentially take a step towards conserving what we have while using less water, as opposed to fallowing and destroying what we have right. to use less water, because there's going to be a knock-on effect from that, like food security or, sure. you know, markets, uh, local markets that run out of jobs and other things. Yeah. So, And what is your, what is your LUMO thing? What's the pitch in terms of like increased efficiency or less water use or all that kind of stuff? Well, first, like I said, primary thing is we want to help you reduce labor costs, you know, so significantly reduce the labor costs mm. that it takes to operate your irrigation system. Because you can monitor it remotely, basically. You can turn on and off the system remotely. You can do precise allocations of water. You can monitor it remotely. Right. You can detect leaks. You can turn off the valve remotely if, automatically if we detect catastrophic leaks and so on. The second thing would be, you know, protect your irrigation assets. So your pumps and your, mm. your you know, your, your filters and other things. Pumps can blow up or be broken down. These are very expensive assets for growers. So when when there are clogs or there are catastrophic you know losses, you could really damage your crop and you could damage your irrigation assets. So having smarts inside the irrigation system mm. like Lumo to detect those things can really be a, a saver for you. And then yeah, finally the, the final pitch is like use fifty percent less water. You know, like irrigate, shift your irrigations to night, catch catastrophic leaks. Do more precision allocations of water so that you don't have to over irrigate to hope that you get the right yeah. number to the to the crop. Things like that can add up. You know, somewhere between thirty and fifty percent is what we think we can help farmers reduce in terms of water use simply by catching those those things. What is the when you were like? So I started this company, and then I sold it to Yelp, and then I moved to San Francisco, and now I'm building hardware and software for farmers. How was that pitch received by venture capitalists or kind of when you're going out to raise money? 
Yeah. I mean, we started with just the friends and family thing, you know, people yeah. that had invested in the last company. So that helped. Then other VCs, yeah, I don't I don't think they all they all <laughs> saw it. I think they were kind of like, you know, the founder fit maybe isn't great, but Fallline was amazing. They came in and they've led led our rounds. You know, we've raised about 3.9. They put in about 2.1 of that. And, you know, I think that they they really appreciated that we'd done the work. So like right. I was well aware that I'm not a farmer. And so I went and worked as an irrigator for a summer. You know, I went and started my own orchard. I built my own prototypes. I, mm-hmm. you know, I did a hundred plus customer discovery interviews. So I was able to show them and and my advisory board. Like I, I was able to put on some pretty experienced mm-hmm. growers in my advisory board that I was able to turn to every day to help me answer the questions that I wasn't going to be able to answer without a lifetime of kind of doing it. So yeah, doing all that helped. And that that yeah. really kind of like, I think Fallline trusted that that was going to fill the gap because there's definitely a gap. There's no doubt. But, you know, you've just got to be able to understand where your gaps are. Be honest about that really early and then fill those gaps with great people. What was your worst day of work? Oh, man, it's a good question. We've had a few. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you can imagine, like we, we make mistakes, you know, so I've I've had I've had situations where like yeah i totally was trying to change a valve and didn't even notice that the water line was still pressurized and i like accidentally knocked off the solenoid and the valve opened and it was like shooting a geyser into the air and like for a company that's trying to conserve water that was uh yeah that was a pretty shitty day just like feeling so stupid like how did i do that you know i probably wasted i don't even know how many gallons of water that wasted but you know that from that you learn like this is how easy it is to make these kinds of mistakes yeah. and when there isn't systems in the you know when there's no technology in the system imagine how much mistakes like that are happening all across California every single day costing us how many thousands or millions of acre feet of water it's just constant so as bad as that day was especially cuz yeah you got to talk to the customer and you know tell them what happened yeah. and all that you know i think just owning it was really important and and then too like it really validated the need. Like we, this yeah. is happening everywhere. It's not just us. So this is probably constant and we need to just build better technology. And so, you know, from that lesson, we were able to build some cool technology and, and, you know, now we're detecting leaks like that all the time and right. we're helping save water. So hopefully it was worth it. Yeah. That must've been a difficult conversation to be like, um, yeah, I'm going to help you save water. By the way, I created a geyser in your field. My bad. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's not, uh, that, that was a bad one. That much water coming out of a pipe is is uh, very overwhelming as well. I can I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a big three or four inch pipe shooting water out at 100 yeah. psi. It, oh my it's god, it's impressive, man! It's like a water park. Oh my god. Um, well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I and I wish you luck with it, especially as a California resident. It's funny, I, I'm like crazy with my kids because I grew up here, so like. Grew up in drought, so I'm always like, you know, they leave the faucet on while they're brushing their teeth. I'm like, no. And they're like, you know, they they know that the refrain in this house is water is life. I mean, it's a little ridiculous. It's not ridiculous at all. But but what you're doing is like 80 plus percent of our water. And it's like me telling them to turn off the tap. I, I know it's like important from a kind of attitudinal thing, but it's really about ag. It really feels like. Ag is big. but And I used to say that actually until I read that book let there be water and, and uh, Israel conquered their water issues first with cultural mm. shift and then with ag tech. But the the cultural shift is what made the political will for yeah. 
the technology and the policy right. to build a healthier water environment and water, yeah, water, water relationship. And so what you're doing is awesome. And keep yeah. doing it. That's so cool. And read that book if you get a chance. It's really great. I will. That sounds very cool. Well, look, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. No, thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Devin for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you guys for listening, for spreading the word, for your ratings, for your, your reviews of the podcast. If you haven't done one yet, please stop right now. Just take a moment. Hit the five stars. Maybe write a few words. Um, it really does help other people find the show. That is it for me this week. I don't know if I'm writing this week in the Times. Um, I'm traveling. I'm on the road on another story, but um, you may see me in the Times, so you should just check it just in case. Thetimes.co.uk, the Sunday Times actual physical newspaper. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.